Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. So we have today here um, Dr. Karen Wilcox from the University of Utah. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Patricia, for having me today. It's my pleasure to speak to you. My name is Karen Wilcox. I'm the Richard L. Stimson Presidential Professor and Chair of the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. I also have an adjunct position in the Department of Biomedical Engineering as well here at the University of Utah. I'm also the Director of the Anticonvulsant Drug Development Program, or the AD Program, here at the University. And the AD Program has served for the last uh, 47 years <laughs> of, as the contract site for the Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program at NINDS. And we're really excited about our um, interactions with that very successful program over the years. Thank you. It's um, our pleasure to have you um, participating with us here. Um, So about this program that you were talking about, Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program, uh, you have been working for many years uh, in this this program, uh, trying to find new drugs that could um, treat and prevent epilepsy. Can you tell us a little bit about this program? It would be my pleasure. We're really very proud of this program and to, again, as I mentioned, serve as the contract site for the Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program, which is based out of NINDS at the National Institutes of Health. It's been a longstanding public-private consortium to help identify novel anti-seizure drugs. And over the last 35 or so years, all of the anti-seizure drugs that um, have come on the market, the vast majority of them have come through our program. And we are really exceptionally proud of the fact that much of the preclinical data that was acquired at the screening program has been used to by uh, different companies and different suppliers, such as medicinal chemists or small biotech companies, has been used uh, to submit IND applications to the FDA. And so we've really had a um, an active participation in those in the development of those new many of those new anti seizure medications, and we're really proud of that record um, of success. Um, the way it works is that uh, drug companies or medicinal chemists in academia or academic labs that might have novel compounds that they think might be efficacious as anti seizure medications can submit their compounds to the NIH. Uh, where Brian Klein serves as the director of the um, ETSP, and they can work with the, with the NIH to get their program, their drug into the program. And when they do that, um, they send them those compounds to us in a blinded fashion. We don't know what the compound is. We don't know who supplied the compound. And then all of our experiments are done um, in at the University of Utah in a blinded fashion. So our uh, technical support team does not know what they are screening. And this allows an um, exceptional amount of rigor and reproducibility in the data that we then collect um, and hopefully uh, helps us not to be biased in our, in our assessment. 
Um, let's see, what else can I tell you about the program? The data all belongs to the suppliers. And so we submit the data back to NINDS and to the ETSP, and then they provide the supplier that data set that was acquired in our program. And we have a battery of uh, both in vivo and in vitro assays that are used in preclinical evaluation of compounds. And they go from sort of uh, more simple assays in, in, in mouse and rat models, all the way up to um, animal models where spontaneous seizures are observed. We also have two subcontractors that are involved. Uh, Synapcell in Grenoble, France, helps out by uh, looking at compounds in their intracampal canate model in mouse and looking at the ability of anti-seizure drugs to stop paroxysmal discharges in the hippocampus. And likewise, at the University of Washington, Dr. Steve White and Melissa Barker-Liski's group um, work with us to look at anti-epileptogenesis studies as well. And so we... Um, offer a really interesting preclinical package, I believe, to the investigators because we have two species, both mouse and rats. We have different uh, strains of mice that we use. We have different locations. And so that also helps to improve the rigor and reproducibility of our assays. And um, it's been a great pleasure and honor for my career ever since I've been at the University of Utah, which has been since 1998, to be involved in this program. I started in the program as a staff scientist and then worked my way up through the ranks to become a co-investigator in 2004. And then in 2016, when Steve White left the University of Utah, I became the principal investigator of the contract site. We don't do any clinical trials. We're not involved in any of the, the clinical trials that happen as a result of the preclinical work that we do. Um, and that is usually, uh, you know, the individual drug companies work on that or the NIH also has a number of pro projects and grant mechanisms now to help academic scientists you know, work their way up towards um, to uh, phase one clinical trials, but we're not involved in that at all. Um, how do you see uh, this challenge of uh, testing a drug in a, in a preclinical trial with uh, usually rodents uh, that are involved in these studies? Um, how is the challenge of translate these results that we have in animal models to human, to patients? Um, I think one of the nice things about a lot of the rodent models is that many of the anti-seizure drugs that are on the market today and clinically available for our patient population um, was discovered in these in the, using these models. And so they have a rich history of uh, uh, in epilepsy research, in, in the ability to help identify compounds that might be efficacious in patients. Certainly, we've had situations where we've had a compound that looks really great at the preclinical level, looks like it could stop all sorts of different kinds of seizures that might even be refractory to other drugs, and they might go on to fail in the clinic. There's a lot of reasons why drugs might not be successful in the clinic. Um, and that's a little bit beyond our control. But, uh, you know, it's a um, an approach that has um, been validated by history, certainly even um, as early as in the 1930s when Merritt and Putnam used the first maximum electroshock test and discovered phenytoin. Um, and that was available for patients a year later. Those have been um, models that have been very predictive of efficacy um, in patients. And so certainly we're not going to 
find all of the drugs that might be successful in patients. And maybe we'll find some drugs that are successful in rodents, but not in patients. But I think the rigor and reproducibility aspects of our program really gives suppliers a lot of confidence that um, if we see something that is working in rodents, it's getting into the brain, um, that it has access to those neural circuits that need to be brought under control by anti-seizure medications. And so there's a good chance that based on at least history, that maybe those will go on to be successful in patients. But again, there's all sorts of reasons why drugs might fail. Um, we don't do a lot of subchronic dosing in animals. So we don't look at things like uh, cardiac, uh, cardiac toxicity issues. Um, is there, you know, concern about um, metabolism and, and metabolites. So we don't, we don't have access. We don't do those kinds of experiments. And those are all reasons why drugs might fail in the clinic. Can you explain to us, if we have now over 20 anti-seizure medications available, why it's so important to have a program like this one, trying to find new drugs? Right. And that is also a great question. We have a lot of drugs available for, for uh, people with epilepsy and, and their caregivers, I think, have really appreciated that. I think one of the concerns, however, is that we still know that nearly 35% of patients with epilepsy don't have their seizures adequately controlled with existing medications. We also don't have a cure for epilepsy. So all of the medications that, that people with epilepsy take are, um, are symptomatic treatments. And so if they stop taking those compounds, their seizures are very likely to return. Um, and so it's a lifelong um, regimen of pharmaceutical drugs that they must take. Um, so we really would like to have a cure for epilepsy. Um, we would like to have drugs that address the refractory population of patients with epilepsy. And as you know, from your work, one of the things that we can't do very effectively is prevent epilepsy in those patients, in those people who are at great risk for developing epilepsy. So for example, with related to your work, um, following traumatic brain injury, we don't know how to prevent the development of epilepsy in those in those patients. We don't know even necessarily who's at risk for developing epilepsy later on. Preventive medicine is always better than trying to fix something that's gone awry. So if we know that our blood pressure is going up, we can exercise more maybe and eat better and change our diet a little bit or maybe take blood pressure medications to prevent the, a stroke or to prevent a heart attack. So we can use preventive medicine, but we don't really have a way to prevent the development of epilepsy in people at risk. And so that's another huge challenge for us. Yes, definitely. We still have a long way to go uh, to find um, drugs that can prevent epilepsy um, and also um, biomarkers that can show us uh, how, the, how the disease is going to develop in it patient. Uh, this is something you have been working with also? Yeah, so we think about biomarkers a lot. And one of the things that we rely a lot on is, um, you know, we're just a small lab. And we really depend upon the advances of other labs in the field of epilepsy. And we keep our eye on the literature. We go to meetings to stay up on this. Biomarkers are critical. And uh, we recently had a workshop at NIH, um, NINDS, that I was a co-chair of. And one of the, uh, the real big focuses of that workshop was to try to think about ways to identify what would be good biomarkers for anti-epileptogenesis. And so, yes, that's something we think about a lot, but we do depend on the, upon the field. Um, and 
the experts who um, and our colleagues who are really working on a wide array of different biomarkers. And as we see different biomarkers emerge, as we see different animal models that might be more predictive of efficacy in humans or things like anti-epileptogenesis, we can pivot fairly rapidly. One of our expertise is, you know, one of our strong expertise lies in the development of new animal models of epilepsy. And so when people come up with new ideas, new animal models, we can pivot quickly and help to implement those into our screening program. So it's a, it takes more than a village. It takes a worldwide effort to identify new biomarkers in epilepsy that might be efficacious. And so we welcome partnering with um, all of our colleagues in the epilepsy research community. Registration is now open for the 15th European Epilepsy Congress, held September 7th through 11th in Rome, Italy. Join your colleagues for five days of teaching courses, platform sessions, symposia, career development sessions, and more. To receive a discount on registration fees, register by May 10th. Visit the ILAE website for more information or register directly at bit.ly slash ILAE Rome. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash I-L-A-E-R-O-M-E, all lowercase. Thanks for listening. So you published this paper in Epilepsy in 2020 showing a new screening approach uh, to use in the ETSP. Um, how this protocol different differ from the others? Uh, why is it important to have a new approach uh, part of this program? Oh, thank you, Patricia, for asking that question. So the uh, paper you're referring to utilized the classic um, systemic low-dose repeated application of systemic canic acid into rats to induce uh, epilepsy, temporal lobe epilepsy in those animals. Um, this animal model has been around since the 1980s, so we certainly weren't the first to use this animal model. Um, but for the first time in our program, we introduced uh, an assay where spontaneous seizures was the um, was the uh, dependent measure that we were looking at when we treated with drugs, and that we can also start doing subchronic administration of drugs. So essentially, what we started doing, um, which we had never done before in the program, is to set up miniature clinical trials, if you will, um, for the rodents, and. Uh, all of the animals get vehicle and all of the animals get um, the investigational compound. And then we can then uh, see how each animal performs when they are given um, an investigational compound to stop their seizures. So it's a you know, subchronic dosing experiment. And what this paper did was really lay out um, an experimental paradigm uh, to determine you know, the proper number of animals to use in the study. Um, one of the drawbacks of this particular animal model, of like many animal models of epilepsy, is that some animals have a high seizure frequency and some have a low seizure frequency. And so that really requires you to increase your power by increasing the N of the number of animals that you're using. But we don't want to use too many animals. We want to limit our animal use as much as humanly possible. And so that study allowed us to test a, a battery of anti-seizure medications. So in the same lab, using the same conditions, we were able to compare head-to-head -head different classes of anti-seizure medications and how they performed against this particular um, rat model of temporal lobe epilepsy. 
And so it really helped us establish a screening paradigm or a platform for screening um, in a spontaneous seizing animal. And this is the first time this has been implemented into our program. We've had many acute models of uh, induced seizures in the, in the program before. We've had kindled animals, which will have a seizure when you administer um, a stimulation to them. So you know when they're going to have a seizure, but they didn't have spontaneous seizures. And really epilepsy, the hallmark of epilepsy is spontaneous seizures that occur uh, randomly and unprovoked. And so this really allows us to, for the very first time in the program, take a look at how novel compounds might perform under those conditions. Um, it, it helped us um, kind of realize a lot of the challenges um, of doing these subchronic dosing experiments. The other thing that we found, um, which was quite interesting, is that animals that have epilepsy, and it's probably not very surprising, often respond differently to uh, drugs than naive rats. So doses that a naive animal might tolerate quite well might actually be toxic in an animal with, with, with epilepsy. Or conversely, an a, a compound that um, is not well tolerated by naive animals might be well tolerated by those epilepsy. And so we were really surprised to find that. And so that's so part of our procedure now is to do a little pre-experiment where we administer dose, uh, we administer drugs for three days before we start a, a, an experiment um, just to see how animals will respond and whether or not the drug dosing regimen that we've chosen based on the pharmacokinetics of the drug, as well as um, the dose itself are well tolerated by the animals because it doesn't help to stop seizures if the animals are sedated or have others ataxic or other side effects. So we want to make sure that the, that the drugs are administered in a tolerated dose. So this protocol, I think, was um, great because it really helps us introduce spontaneous seizures into the screening program for the very first time. And that was a long running critique of our program in the past was that we didn't have any animal models of spontaneous seizures in, in play. That's really amazing. Um, it um, seems that you can mimic better um, the response that we have in, in patients. Um, that's, that's amazing. Uh, congratulations uh, on this work. Thank you. What are some of the program's accomplishments that you are most proud of? Well, I've been with the program now for 23 years, and it's um, I've had the honor of working with some very talented scientists, including Dr. Steve White, at the, now at the University of Washington. And we now have also an external consultant board that we work with um, as well to, to guide us. Um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of um, with my 23-year association with the screening program is that many of the compounds that we've evaluated are actually now in use by patients and not just for patients with epilepsy either. Sometimes the anti-seizure drugs that we've identified actually work really well in other indications, such as, for example, topiramate um, works really well as an anti-migraine medication or lamotrigine is a very good anti-seizure medication, but it's also prescribed a lot to patients with bipolar disorder. And so what I'm really proud of is that I've had the honor of working with dedicated scientists and dedicated uh, technical support staff over the last 23 years that has benefited patients directly. What do you believe is the barrier for the success uh, in finding the correct drug uh, to refractory epilepsy? That's a big question. We can spend a lot of time on that question. 
Um, but one of the things that we've done in our screening program is to adopt a lot of models that have characteristics of refractory seizures. So even in our acute models, some of our acute models, we use, for example, the six hertz psychomotor seizure, where we can induce a seizure using a stimulation frequency of six hertz. And those seizures are very refractory, really hard to stop with the currently administered anti-seizure medications. And also, even if we look at the back end of our screening program, we work with a lot of um, spontaneously seizing animals with temporal lobe epilepsy that are also refractory to a number of anti-seizure drugs. So it's our idea and our hypothesis is that if we create a flow chart um, of everly increasingly more complex and difficult assays, but that are all refractory in some way, shape, or form to some some classes of anti-seizure medications, maybe will I be able to identify some some new novel um, anti-seizure medications with novel mechanisms of action that might actually address the refractory population a little bit better. From a big picture uh, perspective with the field, I mean, we now know that there's over 700 different genes that can be mutated that confer pathogenic um, disease to patients. And so there's a wide array of etiologies. We also know that with the acquired epilepsies, there's a lot of different ways to acquire epilepsy, whether it's traumatic brain injury, a brain tumor, infection. Um, so some of the things that we've tried to do is develop better animal models and we are, um, have also implemented a model of infection-induced epilepsy into our program. Is, um, infection is uh, a major cause of epilepsy. And so it's our central nervous system infection. And so it's our hope that by having better animal models, that we might be able to identify better drugs for pa select patient populations. And so, you know, in the clinical trial realm, we might have to start really stratifying patient populations a little bit better. And we see that now where drug companies, for example, or might be looking very targetedly, might be targeting their, their therapies at Dravet syndrome or those children with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And so by stratifying the patient population and not just giving drugs to a wide array of patients with different kinds of epilepsy, we might be able to have uh, better outcomes um, by the, in the clinical trials as well. So, um, you know, basic research is key. Um, we have to continue our basic science network and our basic research to understand all of the different ways a patient might develop epilepsy because that, or, or come to have epilepsy because that might really change the drug that they need. So precision medicine going into the future is going to be really important, um, but that does pose a lot of challenges for therapy development for sure. And so some ways some people have addressed that is by using model organisms. So for example, Scott Baraband's group and many others have begun to use zebrafish, which have mutations uh, delivered to them that are pathogenic in humans. And then they can do a wide array of drug screens and FDA approved drugs and might identify an already approved FDA drug that might be really efficacious in a subset of patients with a very specific mutation resulting in epilepsy. So those um, more precision medicine approaches um, might in the future, I think, hold a lot of promise for the refractory patient. So what, I, what do you would say that are your hopes for, let's say, um, short-term um, plan, like five years um, in the drug screen, screening research? How do you see, what, what do you think it's gonna, what are you hoping to see in about five years uh, of research? 
Well, I think one of the things that I've I've seen um, at recent epilepsy meetings, for example, you know, different ILAE congresses or the American Epilepsy Society meeting, is that there's a lot of innovation um, happening in the basic sciences that will contribute to different kinds of medications. So, for example, antisense oligonucleotides uh, used as drug therapy might hold a lot of promise for uh, treating different types of genetic epilepsies. Um, or even just acquired epilepsies as well. And so what I see in the next five years is that we're gonna have a lot of different opportunities beyond small molecules that can help treat the person with epilepsy. And, and, and we need to get more information about those kinds of strategies. We need to do more work. Five years is actually not a long time in trying to develop new therapies, it takes often up to 10 years to have new therapies come through programs, do preclinical evaluation from bench to bedside, all the way to the clinic, um, often takes many more years than five. So, you know, in five years, I hope that we'll continue to make additional contributions to the armamentarium of drugs available for uh, patients and their families and for clinicians to prescribe for them. Um, I hope that happens. There's several compounds in the pipeline now that are being tested in, in clinical trials that hopefully will come, become available. And hopefully our program will continue to provide useful information to those who develop new therapies. And we're open to testing you know, biologics or, or antisense oligonucleotides or even stimulation therapies, devices. Um, there's all sorts of approaches that might the future might hold uh, a lot of promise for patients. Do you have do you have anything else you want to add that we didn't talk about that you think it's important to be said? Well, I, I just want to say thank you, but I also want to say I'm very encouraged by the young epilepsy organizations that are popping up and that I think the future is really bright for epilepsy research um, with individuals such as yourself and um, trying to make a difference in patients' lives by doing basic research that's going to be really meaningful. So I'm really optimistic that we can continue to attract the brightest minds to epilepsy research to really hone in on some of these problems we've talked about, like the patient that's refractory or the person who's at risk for developing epilepsy or trying to find a cure for those who already have epilepsy. So I think uh, the future is bright and I'm really excited about that. Um, thank you so much for participating in our podcast. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Congratulations uh, on your findings and amazing work you have been doing. Oh, thank you very much, Patricia, and good luck to you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharpwaves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.